Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like drains, dustbins and happiness. I don't think we've done any of those before, Sam. I love the idea of the history of drains. The history of drains mm. for me is all about Pompeii. It's all about the, the drains that those archaeologists have dug up and all the food detritus that has been left there that allows one to reconstruct the eating habits of people in the ancient world. Ooh. I think there are drains in Exeter, aren't there? In the secret passages under the city? Mm. Are those medieval drains? Yes, they're very damp. Mm. Very uh, da- damp dust and bins dark. is also interesting. Being told to take the bins out. It'd be something to do with, uh, with marital relationships we could do there. I think, and, and, and protest, banging bins, and happiness. Oh, yeah. who, 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 have we ever done happiness? No, I, we should, I, definitely. I feel we should. We've done the smile, yeah. but the smile isn't always about happiness. So we, the smile is about the French Revolution, as you well remember. However, for the yes. moment, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of foxes, which of course has nothing whatsoever to do with fox hunting, but it's in fact all about the remarkable sport of fox tossing. It's also about aerial golf, Basil Brush and the history of British light entertainment. It's about Operation Fantasia in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor when the Office for Strategic Service, America's wartime intelligence agency, experimented with psychological warfare against the Japanese-based Shinto Kitsune or fox-shaped spirits with magical abilities. It's also about the board game Fox and Geese. Who knew? Or who knew, for example, that the history of stripes is in fact all about the Carmelite order and the banning of striped clothing in medieval world. It's also about a marker of social stigma. Think about sartorial garb of the gangster. It's about 18th century maritime history, including Nelson's stocking. It's about stripes as a marketing phenomena, zebras, patterned cathedrals, as well as the moving story of concentration camp uniforms. Who knew? Uh, Let me introduce my fellow presenter. Let me say of him that if history were a journey to a distant land, this man would be none other than the Buzz Aldrin of the past, breaking boundaries, leaving those behind to see the world in a unique and new way. He is a true spaceman of history. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. (laughs) Good morning. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he 
were a homesickness-related historian. He'd be the equivalent of an 18th-century grand tourist out on the quest for knowledge, experience and adventure, touring the libraries, archives and historic sites of Europe's greatest capitals. But at the heart, he's just a simple Devon yellow hat. Yes, Siree Bob, you can't stop the home fires burning. You can't stop his yearning for home. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. <laughs> Did you like that? I, li- I like the sort of the, the burning and yearning rhyme there. Very good, James. Uh, very very good. impressive. Indeed. Very... Hello, everyone. Um, we are uh, excitedly doing homesickness today. Uh, it's a wonderful topic. James, I think your idea. It was my idea. And the, it's my idea partly because of my new project on the history of separation. A big project Ooh. called Moved Apart, which is a fantastic project funded by the Swedish Research Council that I'm doing with... Uh, colleagues in Sweden and in Australia. And one of the things that I've been doing a little bit of reading about recently is homesickness. Yeah, so how do people, when they are moved apart, so they're living apart, they're travelling apart for various reasons, they're either separated through trade, through business, um, diplomacy, uh, maybe it's related to um, industrialization. it's about adventure, it's about conquest, it's about people being dislocated through war, through famine, um, through persecution. And what are the emotional feelings connected to that? Um, And some of those are about loneliness and longing and missing people. But also there is a sense when you are moved away from your home that you have a a yearning or a longing to sort of return to that home. And so in some ways it's it's several things. It is a it's a sort of sense in which people um, feel a yearning or longing to go back to a childhood home. Um, they want to go back home to connect with family, with loved ones, but also it's a sort of sense of a metaphorical home as well. And it's a connection to a kind of distant past. And that's something that's much more difficult to to sort of conceptualise because often the sense of, uh, of a, a sort of distant home or a distant past becomes very sort of romanticised and it's something that you can never never ever capture and I think when I when I try and sort of think about this I think about um, in one of Stephen Fry's volumes of his many many autobiographies I think he's written about four now and I can't remember where it is but he talks about trying to go back to Cambridge where he was an undergraduate student member of Footlights and he says the problem is that it's like going back to where the circus once was the circus has gone and has moved on and for him Cambridge in his you know in his youth was about it wasn't simply the place it was about the people it was about the people that were there and no those people had all moved on and weren't there so his cambridge just no longer exists because it is those mm. those people so for me um homesickness is all of those things it is about being separated from people dislocated it's wanting to go back it's wanting to reconnect with people, but it's also this sort of this illusory sense of, of home or of wanting to be somewhere. So there we are. There's it's, a little starter for 10. Well, it's a, it's a very good starter for 10, James. And it well, reminds you. us that it's a kind of a fundamentally historical problem. It's astonishing how regularly this comes up with our histories of the unexpected episodes. Um, so here's the thing. It's a kind of comparative, isn't it? It's homesickness is... Yes, it's nostalgia, it's fondness for place and memory, but it's it's a comparative between what now you're you're the life you're living it now, the life you're experiencing it now, and then like where you've come from, which is in the past, um, 
And it's how you remember that bit. It's not how you experience that bit. It's completely different. It's how you, it's your memory of how you experienced it. So you, it's, it's how you live your life now. And then it's that being compared to how you remember that experience of being before. And so, you know, essentially we've got to remember that that, that past has gone. It's a, it's a memory. It's not real. But your life as you're living it now is real. And it is a, it's experienced in a fundamentally different way. Um, so there are some really interesting historical problems with this because people, I think, you know, you will end up being homesick for perhaps um, an experience that was not as nice as they suspect. There's a bit of rose-tinted spectacles often going on. And there's also a kind of a, a kind of crazy, um, I wrote down here, cornucopia of emotion, question mark, and I'm not sure what I was going to talk about. No, definitely but... a cornucopia of emotion. I think it's to do with the complexities of it. So... Um, can your homesickness change from location to location? Like, can you be more homesick for one place than you can for another? So, so homesickness is not like a level thing. It changes according to your, uh, the way you remember it. And the other point as well is worth thinking about is to say, yes, I'm homesick. But that, the kind of the level of that homesickness can change, um, not necessarily about where you're being homesick for. So you can be more or less homesick at any one point. And I think that the point I wanted to make it make was that... Um, the more you think about homesickness, the more complicated it gets. If you question why you are being homesickness, how accurate your memories of your home are and how it impacts you and if affects you every day. So, um, yeah, wanted to kind of explode it and say it really isn't uh, is, isn't that simple. And also it runs two ways, which is really interesting. So if you talk about someone being homesick, it's like, oh, this, but I feel homesick because I, I, I'm in China and I miss my kids at home, right? Um, but if someone is being homesick, it definitely happens the other way. So home can be sick for you. And there's a there's there's definitely two ways of looking at it, which um, I think historians need to think about. Yeah, yeah. And also with that, there's a there's an implicit tension because you know that you are going to be homesick, but yet you so take for example you going, you know, going off to China, um, or a uh, a sort of um colonial ruler you know official you know going off to india or wherever um there is a sense in which they you you need to do that there's a part of you that needs to do that that is about adventure that is about you know in the in the um rulers um sort of example you're thinking about somebody that has to go out and 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 follow rules and and establish empire etc etc whatever we feel about that um, but at the same time, there is that tension that you want to be at home. So there's that tension between sort of, you know, needing to do something, wanting to do something, having to do something, but also doing that sort of, you know, pulls you apart from family. And so that's, yeah, and that, that that's the initial. That could be a real initial. trigger for it, yeah. can't it? Yeah. Um, what triggers it is interesting. And also there's the coping mechanisms of homesickness and how that has changed over yes. time, uh, which is all, uh, has a lot to do with technology. And, you know, it's so easy to Zoom people yeah. and to take photos and send things. And that certainly alleviates things. Um, letter writing, I think, in the past was one way of doing it, a kind of a, a way of, um, of proving to yourself that you cared uh, by sitting down and taking the time to write, not knowing how long that letter was going to take and, you know, if it would even get there. Um, which, of course, links to the, you know, the impact of letters and missives, whatever they might be, arriving from distant shores. Um, the, the reasons for separation, of course, is an important part of this. Um, there are so many ways. I mean, there's... there's um, uh, I just scribbled down a few. Uh, marriage breakdown, orphans, war, refugees. Um, yeah, but I'm going to start by 
by talking about different types of journey was what got me thinking about this. And the furthest possible type of journey is, of course, going to space. Um, and there's some wonderf the wonderful man. examples. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hence the spaceman. I was thinking. I started off thinking about kind of long voyages, you know, around the world. People going away for a year and a half. Francis Drake or whatever it is, sailing around the world and wars and travelling and 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 people being forced to travel. So it's like enforced homesickness, which I'll come back to later. But then there's the 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 people choosing to go go away. This is a lovely story. This is from nine, the 1990s. So 97, you've got an American astronaut called Jerry Lininger. Um, and he goes to the Mir space station for five months. And he leaves behind a pregnant wife, 14-month-old son. And he promises to write every day. And he has 130 days on the Mir space station. The space station's a complete shambles. Um, so the Mir space station was launched in the mid-80s. So by 97, it was uh, 11 or so years old. And um, they suffered terrible glitches. There was a fire, electrical shorts, really terrifying and very miserable. And it's interesting seeing how his letters change from a kind of routine day-to-day Daddy's up here doing this stuff to a frankly terrifying and emotional moving story. Uh, his first one's wonderful. Um, it's called I'm Still an Earthling, uh, 23rd of January 1997. Dear John, this is his son. I decided before this flight that I was going to be a good father and write to you every day. This is my first attempt at that. I realise you are only one year old, and although I exaggerate your talents like any proud father would, I don't think that you can quite read this yet. No problem. When you can, you'll feel good knowing that your father loves you. Spaceflight is a dangerous business. I used to be pretty cavalier about it, but just before this launch, I started questioning what I was about to do. You see, I have so, so much to lose now. You and your mother. I always liked adventures. I remember exhausting the elementary school library of mystery books by someone I think was named Orton, trying to figure out the ending before the ending, anticipating, observing the situation and trying to predict the outcome, reading about people who were in unusual situations and studying how they were challenged and how they responded. Anyway, that curiosity characteristic is what got me on this space station. Sure, I went to lots of schools, did pretty well in our great United States, Navy, went through all the mechanics of the application and interview process, but the basic trait of insatiable curiosity is what drove me through all of that. Space is a frontier. I'm out here exploring for five months. What a privilege. But I sure do miss you. Want most of all to see you come stumbling around the corner, bellow out your big laugh when I give my surprise to see you look and watch you stumble back out of the room to do the same to mum in the other room. You are the best son in the world, John. You know, although I'm up here floating above the earth, I am still an earthling. I feel the pain of separation, the pride of a father and the loneliness of a husband away from his wife like an earthling and maybe even a bit more acutely. Good night, my son. I will be watching over you. So that is one of several fantastic letters written back from space and it just gives us one aspect of uh, of understanding homesickness in the 90s in space um, and it also raises a quite an interesting question of who gets the opportunity to be homesick James which is which is kind of interesting isn't it when I mean, you were talking earlier about um, people being sent around the world uh, whether they're working for the government, it must be a common thing, and you've got sailors taking the ships out there. Uh, but in this instance, who wants to be homesick is got its own history. It's fascinating. So this guy, he um, uh, is a 
extraordinary person. He's got a Bachelor of Science um, uh, from the United States Naval Academy. He becomes a captain in the US Naval Medical, Medical Corps. He's got a doctorate in medicine, uh, a Master of Science degree in systems management, a Master of Public Health degree in health policy, a Doctor of Philosophy in epidemiology. Um, and as I said before, he's a captain in the US Naval Medical Corps. But most of all, he's a man. And um, in this period of space travel, uh, being a man was a fairly significant help in being allowing you to go to space, which would therefore allow you to be homesick from space. There's a wonderful little letter here from the 1960s from a lady called Linda Halpern, and she decided to uh, fulfil a school assignment by um, writing uh, to see if she could pursue a dream. So she wrote to President Kennedy asking him what she needed to do to become an astronaut. And NASA write back and they say, um, President Kennedy has asked this officer, thank you for your recent letter. Your willingness to serve your country as a volunteer woman astronaut is commendable. However, while many women are employed in other capacities in the space programme, some of them in extremely important scientific posts, we have no present plans to employ women on space flights because of the degree of scientific and flight training and the physical characteristics which are required. We appreciate your interest in and support of the nation's space programme, um, which opens up a whole new window of who is doing the homesickness from space um, the first woman to fly into space was a Russian, did it in 1963. She was a textile factory assembly worker, Valentina Tereshkova, um, rather, than a fee, uh, rather than a pilot like her male cosmonaut colleagues. Um, and uh, this was interesting. Um, so Sally Ride, the first American female astronaut, goes into space in 1983. So that is... Oh, 20 years after Linda Halpern wrote to President Kennedy. Um, and when um, she was interviewed by the press just before she goes up, she was asked about her reproductive organs and whether she would cry if things went wrong on the job. So uh, for me, homesickness is all about space travel. It's all about sexism. It's also all about the history of paternal relationships. And it's absolutely fascinating. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh my gosh, Sam, I could pick up on that in so many different ways. It was such a rich example. So I think the one thing that I will pick up on is this idea of men and women experiencing homesickness differently. I read a brilliant book by Susan J. Matt, which was Homesickness, uh, which is all about uh, American history. And it looks at the history of homesickness from the 17th century, when you've got the sort of founding fathers, people moving across uh, to America, you've then got the, it traces it through the Civil War, it traces it through the antebellum period where people are moving around America, it then traces it through the uh, Second World, First and Second World War and people dislocated, and then it traces it through 
the modern 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 day and so throughout that you've got various sort of examples of where people are being moved away from home they're either uh, they're either migrating so moving away from countries they are going to war they are moving across country to relocate around the country um, and it's absolutely fascinating um, it charts the the sort of changing perceptions towards it people's experience of it are, is through diaries what's fascinating about it is the the sort of medicalization of homesickness uh, which which sort of moves to be a sort of uh, something that is medically treated, particularly associated with those uh, soldiers who suffered from homesickness. Uh, and by the 20th century, it turns into something that is associated with children. So it's a sort of childish um, sort of uh, illness um, uh, connected very closely to nostalgia, uh, which comes out of sort of 17th century uh, Swiss sort of medical thinking but one of the things that is fascinating about it is her argument that uh, women were experienced homesickness in different ways um, and exactly as you talked about with the men going into space so men are the ones who are you know active and involved in fighting in discovery this is in general terms are often away from the home on trade on business or, or whatever and you know and it's the it's the um, it's the women who are often at home, less empowered, you know, less choice, which accentuates their feeling of separation. So they're being pulled between, you know, between home and their sort of domestic helpmeet, and then and then moving. But there are some of these huge historical forces, like diaspora, people migrating, that women experience in very similar ways to men. And this leads me to the example that I want to talk about, which is about the Holocaust. Uh, and there is a br brilliant uh, collection of Holocaust writings, diaries, letters, uh, memoirs um, by the United States Holocaust Museum. Uh, check out their website, which is Experiencing History, Holocaust Sources in Context. And what this, what this gathers together is all sorts of sources um, it's sort of diary entries, letters, interviews, so lots of oral histories. Um, and it's looking at the experience of Jewish people uh, across the world, um, not only their experience in concentration camps, but also those who managed to flee the Nazi regime and escape to countries where they could um, uh, be free from persecution. And there are two examples uh, that I want to talk about two very different examples, um, uh, both by both by um, women um, or young teenagers, uh, and working in very different ways. The first is a a diary of a of a young girl called Elizabeth Ornstein, who was born in an elite family in Vienna. Um, and after the Anschluss, uh, which is that sort of annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany in March 1938, um, the, her position changed very quickly um, and she was taken out of uh, Nazi Germany through the Kindertransport, that series of operations to basically take 
children out of danger or Jewish children out of danger, transport them uh, through a network of transport um, into the United Kingdom. So she ends up there and then later on uh, in, I think, um, 1940 or so, she manages to go to New York and settles in uh, America. What we have is a series of extracts from her diary that she kept during this period. This diary was later um, later published as a memoir, um, and it covers this period of her life, and it's got lovely little sort of illustrations to it, and I just want to read you uh, some extracts from it. Um, the 1st of February, 1938. Uh, Liesel, but my name's not Liesel anymore. No, the lovely carefree time is over. Sometimes I'd like to be a baby again, and then right away I'm glad again to be almost grown up. I get homesick very rarely, but I feel sorry whenever I see someone crying. Then it is sometimes happens that I have to secretly cry into my pillows. Uh, the 2nd of January 1940. I had given up hope of seeing them ever again, but God did not want it to be that way, and I hope to be with my parents again soon. So she basically live at this point, she's living in the United Kingdom, separated from her parents. So her feelings of homesickness are, are feelings of dislocation from, not only from country, but also dislocation from a very close relationship that with her parents. Um, the 27th of July, uh, 1940. I was very unhappy today. The peaceful, natural surroundings made me homesick. Also, I have read a book that shows what people are really like, and today that is how they seem to me. Rosemary came with Mrs C and Goya from London to see us again after three months. She didn't even look at me, and I felt hurt, although she is shallow by nature. All of a sudden, I have a longing for my old catechism. I can still remember the Ten Commandments, but only the fundamental truths one, two, five, and six. I've forgotten two of them. I also use a lot of swear words and I'm untidy. Mama will take little pleasure in me, and I seriously wish I had never had to go to England. So there we are, like a really sort of touching um, memoir of a, a young girl separated from family, having been taken by the Kinder Transport to live in uh, in the United Kingdom. One final uh, example that I have, which is slightly different, is recipes from a cookbook by a woman called Eva Ostwald. And you may think that why 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 are recipes important? And again, what we've got is these are this this woman was in a a concentration camp in Ravensbrück. Uh, between 1943 and 1945. Um, she ends up uh, surviving. Uh, she's evacuated from the camp in the summer of 1945. She travels to Des Dresden to hunt down her daughter, only to find that she's been killed during air raids of the city. And during her time in the camp, she kept this little uh, recipe book, and there are two featured recipes, one for apricot dumplings and another for Hungarian omelette. These are very, you know, typical uh, Central European uh, recipes with very rich ingredients. So the dumplings recipe, which is from Vienna, uh, has 300 grams of potatoes, 800 grams of semolina, 150 grams of potato flour, salt, sugar, egg you need everything together and fill it with apricots and sugar and cook in boiling salt water and then add breadcrumbs on the top 
the Hungarian omelette has green and red pepper, thin, thinly cut, um, stewed with parsley, onions, tomatoes, mushrooms, uh, and some brain in it, uh, and beaten eggs, uh, and you bake it as an omelette. Now, why might you think that somebody who had no access to any of these items be recording that in a recipe book in the middle of a concentration camp? That, I think, I mean, we can argue about that. We don't have the sort of hard and fast... Uh, you know, historical evidence here. But is this about transmitting these recipes to her daughter? So these recipes passed down from one generation to the next. Is it a trying to um, establish and preserve a, a culinary tradition? Is it a, a an attempt to try and remind herself of the kinds of recipes that she had at home? Clearly what we have is a woman who is displaced in extraordinarily trying and dangerous circumstances in a concentration camp, trying to do something that is normal, that is about archiving the memory of her homeland. So there we are, Sam. Uh, the the history of homesickness is not only all about the, the history of America, it's about the gendered dimension to the way in which men and women experienced homesickness differently, and it's also about the way in which people survived and dealt with and explained the Holocaust. Wow. Big stuff. It's amazing stuff. Yeah, and actually it reminds me, I've just come back from Sweden where I've been doing some filming. Um, and I was at the Swedish uh, National Maritime Museum and they've got a wonderful new exhibition on refugees um, fleeing uh, the Baltic states, Second World War, but a lot coming from Estonia, Latvia, coming across from Sweden. They've actually got a, um, a, a rowing boat. They've got a vessel which, which was once full of refugees um, rowing their way across the Baltic to get to Sweden. Very powerful indeed. It felt like a very modern story. Um, and uh, one of the things they have there is the most fantastic teddy bear um, which was obviously uh, helped across the Baltic and loved very much. Um, and it's missing an ear, it's missing an eye, it's got a kind of bandage over its head. It looks like a prisoner of war, um, it look, or a wounded soldier. And it's just one of several uh, several teddy bears. There's another one here. This is from a, a, a chapter I came across, uh, published by the, the um, Swedish National Maritime Museum. His name is Tommy. He is roughly 10 centimetres tall and covered with fine, short fur, golden in colour. He has upright ears and a purple ribbon around his neck. His eyes are made of dark brown glass, while his nose is an ordinary round button. Originally, he had a long red tongue sticking out of his mouth, but it was lost a long time ago. Tommy is a stuffed animal, a soft toy dog given to a young boy called Tavi back in 1943 and taken to Sweden one year later when the family fled westward in a tugboat. In 2020, the threadbare creature was documented by the Swedish National Maritime Museum as part of the project, The Materiality of the Great Escape. Um, so just finishing there, James, with a, an idea about objects and um, what you would take with you to tie yourself up um, to home if you were traveling um, a long way at an unexpected time it's worth thinking about what your kids might take or what your friends might take because everyone would take something different uh, and so think about that and also think about why you would take it um, and I think that ends up being very revealing about yourself also very revealing about the way you think of other people and what you think they are tied to because what you think they are tied to will probably not be the same as what they would choose um, 
bit of an interesting thing to think of there, James, at the end. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. So uh, that's it, guys. Um, homesickness, fascinating stuff. Um, oh, and it's actually just struck me that you can think about homesickness in terms of, of um, refugees, really interesting. Things like the Calais refugee camp or, or wall building, people being forced to change their perception of home. Where is home? Uh, where is home for you? So that's something else you can think of. Follow me on social media, please. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. You can see all the exciting things that I'm up to. And you can certainly follow James as well. You can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow the pod uh, at Unexpected pod and you can follow us on instagram and now uh facebook and also youtube we also have a website historiesoftheunexpected.com and a patreon page should you wish to support what we are doing to change the way in which we think about the past but meanwhile thank you for listening and take care that's it guys cheerio bye-bye bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.